my name is Taylor, and I always say, hey, my name's Taylor, and I'm awkward, but my husband told me, he was like, you know, I don't think you're awkward. I think you're weird, but I don't think you're awkward. You're the one that always says that about yourself, so. Um, I always get really red in my neck, and like, if you see me singing, it happens a lot. It's not just because I'm nervous. It is. I am nervous, but I have something called systemic lupus erythematosus, And it's just a really big word for an autoimmune disease where my body can't tell the difference between good cells and healthy cells, so it just attacks all of them. So I get this really kickoff from rash, like, up my neck, and if I didn't have makeup, it's all across my face. Um, It happens if I'm excited. It happens if I'm stressed out. It's a good thing. It's a bad thing. But, like, unless I'm at, like, a chill, which is never, um, I'm red. So fret not. I know it's there. I'm not sunburned like Emily thinks. Um, It's just part of my lupus. I'm grateful that that's all that I have. Some people, I mean, don't Google the disease. It's awful. Um, But my diagnosis is actually really great in comparison to what it could be. So I'm thankful that this is all I have to deal with is redness. So um, we're going to continue on in our series tonight, no matter what. We've talked about some pretty awesome people in the Bible. We've talked about Jeremiah and Amos, Rahab and Naomi and Ruth. And tonight we're going to talk about Esther. She's my absolute favorite. Weeks and weeks ago when Kenny first, like, put this up, I was like, oh, my gosh, that makes me think of Esther. And then, I don't know, it's like I blacked out, and I said, hey, Kenny, da-da-da-da-da. And then he's like, oh, you want to talk about Esther? And I'm like, <laughs> no. Um, this isn't my thing I do. I have things that I do, but this is not it. But God has called me to this, so here I am. So buckle up. Um, <laughs> so we're going to start with Esther. I really love this book, and I could probably read it to you word for word, chapter 1 through 10, but I don't think y'all want to sit and listen to me tell a story for 47 minutes. I mean, I could, um, but that's not why we're here. So I'm going to kind of put it in a nutshell. So if there's some details that I've left out or details that I get wrong, don't be like, dude, that's not what the Bible says. I know this isn't like ESV version. This is like CB version, Taylor Becky. Um, And I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it for you. So it starts with King Ahasuerus, and I'm not going to say that again. I'm just going to say the king now because I'm really not good at pronouncing it. The king in Persia, there's a lot of Jews that are there. They've been in exile from the Babylonian exile. They're there as refugees. But the king throws this big, huge party, and it lasts for 180 days. And at the end of it, when he's nice and wined, um, he summons his wife to come to him. And her name is Queen Vashti, and she refuses. And we don't know if it's because she was tired, she wasn't feeling it, or if she didn't want to fuel his ego. But she said no. And it sends him into this huge ego-fueled rage where he's just upset. And he's like, I can't believe she would do this to me. He gets with his guys because, you know, he's not making a decision by himself because he's, like, here, angry, right? He gets with his counsel, and they're like, you know what you should do? You should make a new law where it says all women have to respect their husbands, basically. So he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that. So he's so, like, wounded with his ego that he makes this new law that all women must honor their husbands. And he sends it out to all of Persia. You know, Persia's not like Alabama. You know, it's like the whole country. It's this big empire with lots of different nations. So he sends it out to everybody in their own native tongue, and it's this huge deal. He's mad. I mean, he's mad. And then in chapter 2, it talks about once he's chilled out, basically, he gets back with these guys. He's like, all right, you know what? Time to move on. Vashti, like, she wounded my ego, but it's time to move on. And basically, these same guys are like, you know what you should do? 
you should send on a message to all of the ladies in the area and basically do like a Persian bachelor. So he sends out this other decree where he basically calls all these eligible women to come and vie for a rose to be his wife. So we're going to read in chapter 2, starting in, sorry, I have lots of stuff in it, starting in verse 8. And my version's a little bit different than what's going to be on the screens, but it's cool. We're going to roll with it. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, the keeper of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of her beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the best quarters. Now, Esther was Jewish. She was living as essentially a refugee in Persia, and she was not of Persian descent. She was Jewish. And it talks about how she didn't reveal her ethnicity from her background because her legal guardian, his name was Mordecai. There's a lot of key players in this. I mean, Esther is, she's my girl. She's the main one. But there's a lot of key players in this. Mordecai is basically her cousin. She's an orphan. Her mother and father are past, and he is her legal guardian and raising her. And he told her, listen, don't tell them that you're Jewish. Just don't, don't tell them. So she didn't let them know that they were Jewish. I mean, I didn't like walk up to Jess and be like, hey, I'm from Shelby County. You know what I mean? So it's not like it's a weird thing to not start with that. But she was being obedient to Mordecai, and she didn't say anything about it. talks about when Esther becomes the queen. It talks again that Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. And I want you to hold on to that word favor because it, it sticks out a lot in this whole book. So in chapter, I mean in verse 17 it says, the king loved Esther more than all of the other women. She, wore, she won more favor and approval from him than any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all of his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. So Esther basically wins the last rose. All of the eligible women in the area, you know, he sends it all out, and she's the one that he chose. She won favor with everybody that she met. The Bible talks about how beautiful she was, how beautiful her figure was and that everybody who met her just fell in love with her. She seemed like she was just this great woman and just somebody that got along with everybody and was loving and kind. Um, and then Mordecai is always there for her. It talks about he is always outside the king's gates. He never comes in, but he's always right outside the king's gates checking on her. He doesn't just leave her and go back to his refugee camp or his little sect that he lived in, his providence. He stays right there with Esther, always in her corner, checking on her every day, finding out how she is, how things are going, how it's going with her, what she's feeling, everything. He's in her corner always. Um, and Mordecai, is, one day he's outside the city, and he overhears these two guys that, for whatever reason, they decide they're going to kill the king. Well, Esther and all of the other virgins are only allowed one meeting with the king. They're not like, it's not a normal courtship, obviously, if there's all these women in a harem. It's not a normal courtship where she can just call him up or shoot him a text and be like, hey, king, what's up? 
Um, she can only spend that one time with him, and she can only be in his presence if he asks it. So during this time, Mordecai goes and tells someone else. He tells Esther. It's like this weird telephone. Luckily, it works out well, and it's not like warped and distorted like the game that we play. But the information gets from Mordecai to a eunuch to Esther, and then Esther tells the king, hey, these two guys are trying to kill you. Well, king does some digging, finds out these two guys are trying to kill me. So he hangs them. So Mordecai is always in Esther's corner, but she has the back. he has the back of the king as well. Um, so in chapter 3, it talks about this guy named Haman. After all this took place, the king honored Haman, son of Hamedatha the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day, and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated, since he was told them he was a Jew. So, sidebar, the Agagites and the Jews, they don't gel well. Um, like Southerners and Yankees, I guess. They just didn't mesh well. So he's already predisposed to not like him, and then he hears that he's refusing to bow down to him. This guy's ego is like through the roof. The king's given him all this praise. He's been promoted to the highest rank possible, and this lowly little Jew is refusing to bow down to him. So again, here's another bruised male ego that's about to like trip out. So he says, When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. Central theme in this book. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with him, to do away with just Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the kingdom. So he's so mad that he's not even just like, that one guy that made him mad, I'm going to take him out. No, everybody, every Jew. So we're talking mass genocide of an entire subculture in this country, not just one person. This is all stemmed from the rage and the pride of this one guy who can't be like, you know what, he's just a Jew, it doesn't matter, like he's just this guy, who is he even? At this time, they don't know that it's Esther's dad, cousin, guardian. They don't know that he has any relation to the queen. They just know that it's some cat who's out here and he's refusing to follow the rules. So instead of just letting it wash off his shoulder, he like holds it in and it fuels this rage and it fuels this pride to where he's ready to wipe out an entire culture over it. So it says in verse 8, Then Haman informed the king, There is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate him. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction, and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. The king removed the ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, the enemy of the Jewish people. Then the king told Haman, The money in the people are given to you to do as you see fit. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman had commanded. So, you know how we talked about that telephone game between, like, Mordecai and the eunuch and then Esther? That works out really well. 
this one's kind of got some holes in it to where all of the information is not being given to the king. Does the king know that Mordecai is Queen Esther's guardian? No. Does the king know that this is the guy who saved him from being assassinated by these two guards? No. Does he know that Haman's pride is the reason that all of this stuff is being manipulated? Haman's making it out to be like these dudes are bad and they're just like causing all this trouble and stuff. They're not following the rules. No, you're mad because he won't bow down to you, so you're going to try and wipe out his people. So Mordecai gets word of this. You know, again, the man's ego is bruised. Sorry, that sounds like I'm bashing all men with this. Not what I'm trying to do. Another man in the story's ego is bruised, and he issues like this huge decree again, like everybody has to know. He's got this seal of the ring of the king that means that, you know, he puts a stamp on it. It's basically from the king's mouth. Haman could write whatever he wants on that decree. And because he's got that ring, it's, it's sealed. It's legit. It's from the king. It's got to be done. So, again, another decree is set out where all of the Jews, at the end of the 12th month, the 13th day of the 12th month of the year, they're all killed. There's no rhyme or reason. They're all going to die. All the armies have this word that they can go out and make this happen. And Mordecai finds out about it, and he is just wrecked. He tears his clothes, he starts throwing ash, and he's just mourning and mourning. And Esther doesn't really have any idea this is going on. She gets word that Mordecai's mourning, and she wants to know why, like, hey, what's going on? I'm sending you some clothes to wear because I hear you don't have anything on. And he refuses this because he's just so wrecked and racked with this mourning that it doesn't make any difference to him. He's not going to wear what Esther gives him. He's just, he's done. He's in an emotional funk. I mean, I would be too. If somebody's like, hey, everybody with the first name that started with a T, on the end of the year, you're done for. I mean, I would probably be a little stressed out. I don't know. Me and Jesus. Anyways, um, so he's in this period of mourning, and he goes to one of the servants that Esther has, and his name is Hathach. And she said to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces Know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard who has not been summoned. So basically Mordecai's like, dude, you've got favor with the king. You're his favorite. He loves you. Go to him and ask him to spare us. And she's like, I can't, if I do that, you know what you're asking? Like, remember, they only get one opportunity to see the king unless the king requests them. And that hasn't been done. So he's basically asking Esther, hey, go knock on his door. Go initiate this conversation with him for us because I am freaking out. So it applies to every man or woman who approaches the king of the inner court who has not been summoned. It's the death penalty. Unless the king extends the golden scepter, allowing that person to live. I've not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. And Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther. Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you're in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. 
So Mordecai went and did everything that Esther commanded. Holy cow. So, I mean, it's four or five sentences, and I, I've read Esther probably six or seven times. Like I said, it's one of my favorites. And every time I read it, something more stands out to me, something different kind of grabs me. And in this, I think because we read it so quickly and the narrative passes by so fast, I think we miss the intensity of the fact of what's going on, how serious this exchange is. You know, like when you're watching CSI or something, they've got that really intense music and the really intense lighting. Like, you're like, oh, man, okay. You start to feel, like, anxious. The first couple times I read this, I'm, like, in my room and, like, the birds are singing. So, no, I'm not thinking, like, holy, Esther could die. The the second time I read it, it hit me hard. Um, I don't know that there's anything that I would say, all right, I know that I'm about to walk in and die. Oh, well. Not that I would do that flippantly, as so it seems, how quickly that exchange happened and how it was so instantaneous for her to be willing to put her life on the line for her people. It doesn't matter if I die, I die. And I think it's so cool that Mordecai kind of calls her out. He's like, so you think because you're the queen you're going to get spared? He's going to find out that you're Jewish. Maybe you were put in this position so you can vie for your people because nobody else would. Mordecai still would have not bowed down to Haman. And if anybody other than Esther would have been in the position that she was in, who knows the fate of the Jewish people? Who knows what could have happened? There might not have been somebody there to stand in the gap for them. So let's keep reading. On the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor in his eyes. The king extended the golden scepter in his hand toward Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Again, that's another one of those, like, really intense moments that doesn't seem intense, and I'm just reading it on that black and white paper. I can only imagine Esther standing there. How stressed out she had to have been when she's getting ready. Like, so she's dressed in her best royal clothes. That's not just something where you go through a t-shirt and running shorts on, like, That takes time, that takes preparation, that's intentional. And she is standing there, and I can't imagine the stress that she's under. She's trying to keep her composure. But on the inside, I'm sure she is racked with all kinds of fear and anxiety, wondering what's going to happen. Had he not gestured that scepter towards her, that would have been it for her. She would have been put to death for approaching him. So there's that really intense moment that's hanging in the balance, and all of her trust is in, this is what I'm supposed to do. She fasted, she had her family fast, she had her servants fast. She went so deep into what God tells us to do to prepare for this, and she wasn't afraid. It doesn't say Esther was racked with fear as she stood before the king. It said she went to him, she asked him, and she approached him. There's no fear, there's no doubt, there's no gray area for her in this. What is it, Queen Esther, the king asked her? Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, will be given to you. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I prepared for them. The king said, hurry and get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, will be done. Esther answered, this is my petition and my request. 
if I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. That day Haman left full of joy and in good spirits, but when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate and Mordecai did not rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. So there's a couple things I kind of want to unpack a little bit. First off, like, kudos to Esther. She's like, hey, guys, you want to come and let me feed you and spoil you? Like, sure, absolutely. She spoke to the natural tendency of them. Like, let me lavish you, let me serve you, let me pour into you. The thing that your first wife didn't do that you banished her and wigged out over, let me dote on you, let me be intentional with you, let me make you feel like you're what's super important to me right now. And then if we look at Haman, he's getting all of this praise and all of this attention. He's the highest ranked official. Nobody else gets any more recognition than him. And now the queen, the chosen one, wants to have a banquet just for him. But still his pride is in the way and all he can think about is Mordecai. He goes home and he's just furious. He goes home and tells his wife, he's like, check it out. I got this cool banquet. Queen Esther asked the king and the king to come too. But you know what? There's that one Jew that I can't shake off my brain, and it's making me furious. And she says, instead of being like, you know, focused on the good things and encouraging her husband, she like plays into it, and it's super toxic. She's like, you know what you should do? You should build a gallows just for Mordecai, and you should hang them. You should hang him. And he's like, okay, that's a great idea. So Haman has gallows built in all this rage and all these edicts being thrown around everywhere. Why not just build some gallows? Because that's a super easy thing to do. Nothing better to do. So something I want to focus on with Esther, too, is that she went to the source. She didn't, like, go on social media and be like, dear diary, what do I do? She fasted. She prayed. She sought God's direction over what to do with this situation. She didn't, like, rip her clothes off and start crying and freaking out. She was intentional with what to do. But she also went to the source in a natural sense. She went to the source in a supernatural sense when she went to the Father. But she went to the king. Who else can control what's going to happen? She went to the king. She didn't go to her girls. She didn't go to her servants. She didn't go to the eunuchs. She went to the source, and she risked everything. She stood in the gap for these people, and she went to the source to see what she could do to fix it. Instead of just talking about something behind somebody's back or instead of just talking about a solution, she actually went and did it. Can you imagine how different our lives would be if we had that same approach or if we had that same boldness? Like if someone does something at school and you're like, mm, that's not cool, but I'm just going to let them do them. No, that's crazy. You have the opportunity to make a difference in people's lives, especially in the season that y'all are in in your lives right now. If something at school is going on that's unsavory, speak up. Don't be quiet. Go to the source. Go to those people. Hey, I saw what you said to that person. What's your, like, that's rude. What's wrong? Like, why are you talking like this? Why are you doing like this? Talking about a situation, talking to a situation isn't going to make any difference. You have to go directly to the source of what's going on. So in chapter 6, it's so silly. The night, that night, sleep escaped the king, so he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to him. They found a written report of how Mordecai had informed two of the king's eunuchs to the guarded entrance who had planned to assassinate the king. The king asked, what honor and recognition have we given Mordecai for this act? So, 
I could read every single detail of that, and I, I would love to. But let's just summarize it. So <laughs> it's, it makes me think, again, of social media. Like, the king's laying, and he's like, I can't go to sleep. So obviously you can't, like, bring out a phone. It's like 465 B.C. You can't scroll through Facebook. So he calls to the people. He keep record of what happened in the kingdom, I think. And he finally finds out that Mordecai is the one who spared him. And he wants to know, like, what did we do to take care of him? And they're like, uh, nothing. So he asked Haman, you know, what would you do to honor a man? What would you do to get the highest honor? And Haman's like, wait a second. Or he thinks. It says, Haman thinks to himself, who would he want to honor more than me? Like, I would rather die. Like, I'm the one who's getting all this praise. Why does he want to give somebody else glory? So he asked him, what would you do? And he said, I would take my best robes, and I would take my best horse, and I would do all these things to lavish him. <laughs> and the plot twist, the king's like, cool, go do that for Mordecai. And Haman's like, uh, Mordecai, the one I'm trying to kill this whole nation, you want me to go honor him above myself? Like, that's funny. I think that God has a really cool sense of humor sometimes. Sometimes it's not so cool when I'm on the receiving end, and I'm like, hmm. I see what you're doing there, God. It's not so cool. But in situations like this, it's really cool to see how God fights our battles for us, and there's little quiet victories that the Father wins for us without us having to make this big deal about it. So it says, while they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet that Esther had prepared for them. So in the middle of all of this, um, in the middle of all of this, Esther is still on her plan. There's so many dynamics that are going on. There's so many moving pieces. But Haman's still got to go to this banquet that Esther's prepared for him because he's got to honor the queen, you know, big lavish dinner that she's having just for me. You know, I'm sure he's a little bit pouty right now because he's got to go honor Mordecai. But in the middle of it, he's got to suck it up and still go to this. So it says, The king and Haman came to the feast with Esther the queen. Once again, on the second day while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom will be done. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your eyes, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request. Spare my people. This is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and extermination. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. The king spoke up and asked Queen Esther, Who is this, and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Esther answered, The adversary and the enemy is the evil Haman. Haman stood terrified before the king and the queen. The king arose in anger and went from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Would he actually violate the queen while I am in the house? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harbanaf, one of the king's eunuchs, said, There's a gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved you. The king said, Hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, then the king's anger subsided. Plot twist. 
Haman has all this rage and all this stuff that's just targeted right towards Mordecai. And the whole time, God is orchestrating this perfect plan that ended with Haman's life being taken on the very gallows that he prepared to kill Mordecai. I think it's crazy. It may sound like dark and twisty, but I think it's cool how that worked out. You know, do I think it's cool that someone had to die? No. But it's cool how God worked that plan out down to a specifics of where it happened. There's so much that God does behind the scenes that we don't even see. We can't even begin to imagine. It's so cool. So remember I told you to put a pin in it, in the word favor. The word favor is in this chapter at least seven times. I quit counting after seven because I got distracted. Um, but the word favor, it comes from the Greek word charis. And I like details. I like to know the what behind the why. So I looked into what the Greek word for favor was. And it's of the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps them, strengthens them, increases them in their Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles a tender fire in them to exercise Christian values and virtues. Holy cow, like, that's a lot of really cool things that describes one little word. And it's over and over again for Esther. Favor, favor, favor. She saw favor with everybody. She saw favor with her servants. She has favor with the king. And this is what saved her. I think that it's so cool that no matter what, Esther did what she felt was the right thing for her people. The Jews didn't have a voice. They were oppressed. They were neglected. And she was able to stand up, put her own life on the line like Jesus did for us. She put her life on the line for her people, and she was victorious. She prayed. She fasted. She did the things that she felt in her heart God was leading her to do. She didn't choose this situation. She didn't choose to be on The Bachelor. You know, odds are she was really young. She was a refugee. She wasn't from this part of town. And she was forced into this situation, and she was forced to be queen. It's not like she can be like, Mm, that's not for me. I don't, I don't think I want to be queen. I'm going to go back. She was forced into this position, and she had disobedience to Mordecai. It says all throughout this book, she did what Mordecai told her. She was obedient to Mordecai. She didn't tell about her heritage. Mordecai told her, this is what you need to do to save your people, and she did it. It wasn't this blind obedience. It was this intentional willingness to do what she was told. And I think we need to be more like that, myself included. I think we all have these really cool opportunities like Esther. No, maybe we don't all have the opportunity to save thousands of people every day. That would be really cool, but no. But we have the opportunity for small victories. We have the opportunity to choose grace over rage. We have the opportunity to choose love over judgment. We have the opportunity to just meet people where they are and remember how broken we are and how unworthy we are before we look at somebody and say, I don't think I want to hang out with them. I don't think I want to invite them to church. I don't think I want to sit with them at lunch. You know, I know they're by themselves. I know they just moved here. I know their parents just got a divorce. We have no idea what is going on in someone's life that's causing them to act the way that they are. But you can choose every day the way that you act and the way that you respond to people. If you're given an opportunity to be bold like Esther, I want you to take it. Sure, it's probably scary, but I doubt it's as scary as standing before the king with your life on the line. I doubt any of us are ever going to be put in situations where we have to choose life or death based off our choices that could impact somebody else. 
So I'm going to pray. Thank you all for hanging tight with me and listening to my story. (laughs) God, I thank you so much for the love that you have for us. I thank you that you meet us right where we are, God. You don't accept perfection from us. You just expect expect obedience. Um, God, none of us were created to be perfect. You're the only perfect one. And I thank you so much for that. I think it would be way too much pressure to try and be perfect. I just can't imagine how exhausting it would be. God, I thank you for these stories. I thank you for this word, God, this book that you've given us. It's alive and it's living and active and it's full of nothing but truth, God. I pray that these truths will land heavy on people's hearts, that as we leave from this place, we know that this boldness isn't just in Esther. This boldness isn't just in this book. This boldness isn't just when we're in a moment of worship and this song is stirring us up. God, this boldness and this love that you've given us, it's everywhere and it's limitless. We can take it with us to school. We can take it with us to work. We can take it in our families, God, and we can grow the kingdom for you. God, I thank you for this place. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come here and just open your word and just worship you, God. I pray now that hearts are stirred and that hearts are obedient as we move into this time of worship. God, we love you so much, and we ask these things in Jesus' name.